Um, hi guys, I just wanted to hop in right now. Um, I'm just jumping in before the episode starts to say that my guest's microphone was picking up my voice, like coming out of his mic. So you're getting there was an echo on my voice the whole episode. And so I've turned his audio low enough that you can't hear the echo, and then I've turned mine low enough that the whole thing is listenable. And so you're just going to need to turn your volume all the way up. I'm really sorry for the, you know, any inconvenience. Um, if it didn't, if it didn't work and you can't hear it all, someone send me a DM at Young Makers Podcast on Instagram, or leave an leave a review or something that says this episode you can't hear it, and I will try to re-edit it and re-upload it hopefully but if you can listen to it just crank it all the way up again sorry for the inconvenience and enjoy the show hey and welcome back to the young makers podcast i'm your host kenzie aaron of aaron iron and steel let's get right into it this is the podcast by young makers about young makers and for everybody and I've got a really great guest this week. This is sort of a business edition Young Makers podcast. My guest this week is, you know, he's pretty young, but he's not quite, he's one of the oldest guests we've had on yet. Um, but I think he'll have a lot of really great insight as a business person and as a craftsman. So without further ado, I'd like to throw it over to my guest, Ben Greenberg of Greenberg Woods. Hey, um, yeah, my name is Ben Greenberg. I run Greenberg Woods. Um, I've been in the knife-related business. I started making knives for going on about nine years now. I'm 23 now. I made my first terrible knife at 14. Um, But my real passion in business has been wood. I've supplied uh, mostly high-end knife handle materials. I started that in my senior year of high school, ran my entire business through college. I graduated in the spring of 2019. And I've been doing this full-time. It's my only source of income for a year and a half now. And I supply all sorts of people you may know, um, about a dozen mastersmiths. I supplied Alex Steele for a while, Green Beetle Knives, Walter Sorrels. Uh, I was the supplier for Forge and Fire for a little bit, but they, uh, they're very odd about their stuff. But yeah, um, yeah, that's me. Awesome, and that's that's a really uh, uh, exclusive. That's a really, you know, high-end resume you've got going on there. Oh, thank you. And so, I assume most of those handle materials you're selling is stabilized. Yeah. So I, uh, yeah, I do a lot of stabilized material, but I do a lot of natural material. Stabilization is actually something. So my degree was actually in chemistry. And my exit thesis that I wrote for my chem degree was actually about wood stabilization and adhesives. Um, So I'm reasonably knowledgeable about stabilization. Um, But yeah, so I sell a lot of stabilized wood, but I do sell natural woods, things like uh, rosewoods, everything in the Dalbergia genus. A lot of ebonies I sell natural, desert iron wood, um, teak burls, things of that nature I sell natural, but most of the material is stabilized. All right, you threw around some big words there, which is great. No, no, I I enjoy it. So um, some of our listeners, I assume most of you guys, you know, it's a pretty knifey podcast, but I'm, you know, trying to. Anyways, a lot of you guys probably know what stabilized wood is or you've at least heard of it, but do you want to walk us through 
you know, roughly the process of uh, yeah. stabilizing wood? Yeah, for sure. So I w- it's definitely a little bit misunderstood. So a lot of guys will talk about epoxies and whatnot. Stabilization does not add an epoxy. It uses a resin. It's um, The resin is called methyl methacrylate, which is basically acrylic. If you think of a piece, you know, a piece of acrylic, that's basically the chemical being added to the wood. So the basic process is you put the wood very dry into a chamber, you pull a vacuum, and you introduce that resin suspended in a liquid, and that soaks in because the vacuum pulls it into the pores. And then if you're having it done professionally, which I have it done at K&G, they then go through a pressure cycle, which forces the resin even deeper into the wood, and then the wood is essentially cooked to cure the resin inside the wood. And what that does is you get a more dense product, which is important. A, it just feels nicer, but also it's stronger. It's resistant to dents. It'll polish up a lot nicer. It'll make a lot of wood more chatoyant. You'll get a better glow. Um, And then also it makes them more stable. It makes them more resistant to cracking, to warping, and to bending from changes in humidity. Great. That's a fantastic description. I'm, you know, I just got my first piece of stabilized wood just from my, uh, the blacksmith supply shop near Mm me. Mm -hmm. And it is, it is definitely heavy. Like you can feel the resin in there. Yeah. Yeah. And it's maple. So I'm really excited to, to test that out. And I know I've looked at stabilized handle material for a long time because handle finishing is something that I've really been working on lately as far as trying to get um, a durable enough finish that if you grab it with a wet hand, water's not going to soak into that handle and puff mm-hmm. it up, mm-hmm. which is something I've struggled with. But yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, in some ways that, that is a bit of an issue. So my, my go-to finishing regimen and what I recommend to people is you know, is sand lots of sandpaper i also am a guy who recommends a lot of stepping down the sandpapers every now and then so you get rid of scratch you make sh- you know you might go like 200 300 400 even a bit more 300 to re because when you stand at a higher grip you can often show the scratches you just left and so you, you know a lot of stepping down and then i usually bring my handles to about 800 or a thousand grit and then I buff. I think handle buffing is fantastic. Um, I have several buffers in my workshop. Um, I like to buff with a brown Tripoli compound. And then um, I buy it from Purgate called Blue Moon. It's basically like a pink scratchless. And that gets a very nice finish that has a little more durability because you're really smoothing out all the fibers. It's not just a polish on top. You're actually burnishing down the fibers and that helps reduce the absorption a little bit. And so what you're talking about is called grain rise. And when by burnishing down the fibers with that buff, you help limit that a little bit. Okay. And what type of uh, wheel are you buffing with? So because I'm not doing contours, I buff my blocks that I put up for sale on my site. I just use a really soft cotton buff. But when you're doing something like a handle where there are contours and you can kind of get in, you know what I mean? You're not trying yeah. to keep a flat surface. Um, you have, you know, a good um, spiral stitched uh, cotton wheel is usually good. Just check the size that your buffer can handle. Um, 
you know, so it's based on the, you want an edge speed, so if you have a smaller, really fast one, you need a smaller wheel, because otherwise you'll be spinning too fast. Um, but yeah, if you have a, you know, a buffer, a, a bench grinder, just look up what size buffing wheel you should get for it, and then, yeah, brown triply and blue moon is my go-to. Okay. And so I've I've experimented with buffing handles just a little bit. And when you're talking about that, do you mean you're using that on stabilized wood or raw wood? Both. Both. Um, okay. I've, I buff, you know, it, you need a certain amount of density to really get the benefits out of it. And that the woods that I don't stabilize are going to be things like African blackwoods and ebonies and rosewoods, which are dense enough to take that really nice buffing, or they're going to be stabilized woods which are also dense enough. Yeah. So then if I had something like, because I know when I'm when I'm polishing up, I just finished, um, it was uh, maple mm -hmm. and stainless, with a stainless steel spacer and then walnut. It mm -hmm. was just, you know, like some cheap American walnut. And mm -hmm. um, I was getting, the, the maple kept getting dirty from yes. dust. Yes. And, and if yes. I tried to buff it, I know, you yeah. know, buffing compound would get in there. So Yeah. So that that's an issue you can sometimes get. That's one of the reasons I like the brown triply compound. The brown triply is not... The blue moon can kind of stick in pores a lot. The brown triply doesn't like to stick in as much. And so when I'm doing those, if you have a separated handle, you I do um, masking tape and I buff it in sections. So you, you tape off one half of the handle and then take off the tape, put a new piece of tape on the other side. And then once they're both power buffed, you can go over it with a clean cloth and just kind of hand buff it a little bit. And you'll leave enough, just a little bit of compound on the surface after a good buff that with just a really fast hand buffing, you can really get a nice smooth continuous finish. Okay, even on like a, it doesn't, okay. I'll have to, I'm going to look into this yeah, for sure. Yeah. I'm getting schooled right now, you guys. I'm, my handle finishing so far has consisted mainly of, you know, polish it up. 2,000 grit sandpaper and then coats of Danish oil. Danish and I let oil? It, I let oh. it almost build on the surface, sort of. So Danish oil. So Danish oil is a curing oil. It's called a drying oil. It's um. So that uh, tongue oil and boiled linseed oil are both called drying oils, which means that they'll they'll polymerize. They will actually turn into a plastic. And the thing is, that plastic is very very soft. So the actual film you're building up is going to have very little real wear resistance. Okay. Yeah. So I'm, I'm going to have to revamp my finishing setup for sure. And then do you recommend buffing with a wax too, or you just do the compound? I, I, I like a finished wax. Um, yeah. I, ac I used to make one when I was um, still in, in school doing chem. I actually made a little... Uh, UV resistant wax, but yeah, a, a mix, you know, a beeswax finish, something like that, a nice hard finishing wax put on with enough friction to just melt it into the pores just a little bit is a nice final finish. And would you do that just with a hand cloth or with a full, with usually, a wheel? Usually, usually a hand cloth, just, you know, d I basically just rub a block of beeswax with a cloth, you know, rub it just quick enough to get a little bit on the cloth and then as fast as you can hand buff it over, and you'll just melt a, a super thin layer. It will give you a nice finish. Okay. I hope you guys have all been taking notes right now. This is, you know, a, 
apart from Josh Smith Knives, who's the first uh, guest I've had, this is definitely the most, you know, knowledgeable person I've had on the show. This reminds me almost of when um, Knife Talk had Dr. Lern Thomas on the show, and he oh, was answering uh, questions on. So this is this is pretty cool to have, you know, someone educated on the show instead of just a bunch of high school <laughs> kids. But I I love interviewing you know oh yeah, makers yeah, like yeah, myself. I it's it's I great. I remember it. It it was it was a wild time. It's it's pretty crazy being in high school and then someone talks to you about it and that look on someone's face. Granted, I like I said, so I'm from Los Angeles. I grew up in the center of LA. You know, I'm not in you know the the center of the country or anything like that. And uh, people give you a weird look when you tell them that. Yeah, well, they give you a pretty weird look anyway, yeah. or a- yeah. anywhere, but I suppose that, um, you know, it's in the inner city, it's probably yeah, a little bit less I common. Huh? I get you, yeah. I, uh, but, so, that brings us really nicely, actually. Let's mm-hmm. hear your whole backstory. I'd love to know how you yeah. got into it and, yeah, for sure. you know, where it's taken you. For sure. So, the, the way I got in, you know, like I said, back when I started this, this was, yeah, nine years ago, it was before Forged and Fire, it was before... Knife making was still a really, really niche hobby, um, and I saw a bunch of blacksmithing on TV. I watched, I don't even remember, some movie or some show, and I just thought it was the coolest thing, and I essentially just bothered my dad relentlessly, um, and eventually he just decided that, so my brother had a phase of pyrotechnics, and I guess between my parents, they just decided, okay, it's less explosive if he has a forge, so fine. And back then, anvils were cheaper. So yeah, I got an anvil, I got a little forge. Um, you know, I started with files, and I made a really god-awful file knife. Uh, and I just thought that was the coolest thing. And I made a couple more knives, but um, I started reading about handle materials. I had a little Cocobolo block set that my dad had made me when I was a kid. And there was a local wood shop. And I just started going by there and just looking at the wood and just bothering them. And then a couple, for a couple of weeks, and I was at that point I was around 15 or 16, and then the owner just said, kid, do you want a job? And I said, yeah, sure, let's do that. Um, and so through high school, I worked full time at a wood shop for my summers. And um, I just decided, hey, I've got a job at a wood shop. I should just memorize the website, the wood database. And so I did. Um, and they were all just surprised because, you know, I was like, oh, you know, well, if you're looking for a dense wood, I could recommend, you know, this purple heart or this wenge and so on. So I got several years of, you know, woodwork, you know, general woodworking experience, a lot of sales experience, a lot of experience with wood, and uh, also a lot of experience knowing how people want to be sold something, which is something I can get into later. And then, um, I don't, but the whole time, you know, every time a, a really curly piece of wood or a cool figure had come in, I would basically trade some of my pay for that chunk of wood. And I ended up building a little crate full of wood. And then I went to school. I went to UC Santa Cruz for chemistry. And then I, um, yeah, I just started, I was in the blade forms back then, and I just started posting some blocks for sale, and people started buying them. And I thought, this is pretty neat. And, uh, yeah, I just kept posting, and then I sold through that whole box, and then I was home for winter break, and I found some guy in Craigslist selling a couple hundred pounds of Cocobolo, and I went over, and I bought it with the money from my bar mitzvah and my job, 
and I started selling that. And then slowly I just started finding more and more direct suppliers and I started growing. Um, I launched my website in the spring of my freshman year, which would have been what, five years ago. And then I, um, yeah, now I import directly from, I believe, 17 or 18 countries. Um, I basically exclusively deal with the people who cut down the trees. I get wood in from Vietnam, Thailand, Cambodia, Indonesia, the Philippines, Armenia, Denmark, Russia, Ireland, Mexico, the United States, Brazil, Colombia, all over. That is impressive. And that's that's a much different backstory than a lot of the things. Well, you, you s- your origin starts the same. Yeah. And I think a lot of ours does. And a lot of the yeah. kids these days, it's Alex Steele. Yeah. Yeah. You know, yeah. which I actually, I actually remember when his channel started. He didn't start as a knife guy. He started as an artisan blacksmith. And I actually remember being in my freshman dorm when he launched. Lo- I think I watched like his second video, and I remember. Uh, yeah, I, it was a long time ago. I think I remember when he launched his channel. Wow. Yeah. I started watching right at the the Warhammer build. Yeah, I so um so I was I was in there pretty early, but yeah, not yeah, not the at the beginning, that's the, for sure. The the main the big episode I sponsored was he did the Forged in Fire challenge. Yeah, and he I remember used, that. Yeah, he used a block of my bias cut black palm. Yeah, that was that was the big. Ep- I think I, I, he also did a sword with some curly Tasmanian. I sold him. He did a couple others, but that was the that was the big one. And that's the point when I started going to your website and ogling at blocks <laughs> of wood that I couldn't afford um, and didn't need. So here's the thing: everyone who every people tell me that, but my website shows me when people put stuff in their cart. So I actually have seen the carts that people have put in. Some guy, one guy, I think. He put like God seven thousand dollars. He put like half my website in his cart, and I just imagine this guy somewhere, someone's wife going, "No, of course you can't do that. What are you <laughs> talking about?" Yeah. yeah, yeah, I can see it. It happens pretty easy once yeah. you start oh, yeah. scrolling oh, yeah. through there. Oh yeah, oh yeah. And so, and those blocks elevate. You know, it's something that you don't need when you start. You definitely yeah, want no, it. Yeah. You're looking at these pieces of wood and thinking, oh, man, how nice would my knife look with that? But until you start making almost like, I don't know, what's the right word for it? Like heirloom, qual- you know, yeah, knives that yeah. deserve the piece of yeah. wood. It, it yeah. becomes a wo- almost a waste of wood to work with something like that that you're just going to. Yeah, so the the main thing I say with the wood is it really does help sell a knife. Because in the end, you know, say you have four knives. They might be different steels, you know, four of the same, you know, same pattern of knife. They might be different steels. You know, you might have one's W2, one's A2 steel, one's S35VN. And you know the differences between those steels. But the average guy who will come up to your table or whatever and see them, he doesn't really know what, you know, what does it mean that this is 1095 and this is S35VN. You know, he doesn't have a good feeling of the difference in edge retention or abrasion resistance or so on. But if one of those has a plain handle and one of them has some really cool handle, I will bet you any amount of money which one he's going to pick up first. It's going to be the one with the interesting handle. Because yeah. steel looks like steel and wood is – I compare it to Damascus steel in a lot of ways. 
it's a really it adds a lot of visual interest and it makes your pieces stand out more yeah yeah i definitely i've i think the nicest piece of wood i ever worked with was uh my first damascus knife and well the first time i tried to actually it's a funny story sort of so i bought this piece of ebony on amazon mm-hmm. and you know as far as buying exotic wood <laughs> on amazon goes it <laughs> ended up being a really nice yeah it, it weighed a ton it's this really heavy little block of hard it's like glass hard yep, it feels yep, like now yep, that i've yep. polished it it's nice yep and i was originally working on this knife for i can't remember who but it was for a family member and i had it fit up really awfully with an awful guard it was my first ever guard <laughs> and it, everything was terrible and i was really excited to see it finished mm-hmm. and then we moved and i never finished it and then about six months later i made my first damascus knife and realized oh man like this sh- i should have a nice handle on this and I used it, and the tang hole was already too big for the knife, but I put on a copper bolster and, you know, covered Hit up it. the hole. Yep. And then I ground into the tang hole, ta- shaping. So I just filled it with a little bit of JB Weld <laughs> and a little wood dust. <laughs> it looks uh, Trust me, man, I remember this. I, I remember when I was starting out, and, like, I remember there's, a, there's an auto shop near my near my parents' house. And we were friendly with the owners, and he, he asked me to make him a knife. And I remember having, like, my one piece of ironwood, and I, like, cut a little too deep, and I was like, damn it, what am I going to do? And, yeah, I yeah. think I did the same thing. I mixed up a little bit of, I think it was two-hour epoxy, and I just got all the sawdust and just furiously mixing it together and praying to God that he didn't notice. Um, no, I, I was, I've been there. Don't worry. Yeah, call it good. And ever yeah. since then, I haven't bought wood that nice mm-hmm. until until this piece of maple, which I'm looking – I can imagine this, like, Brute de Forge with Hamon. Yeah. Where you've got, like, this fading of colors with the wood and a little piece of uh, G10, mm-hmm. black G10 bolster. I've got I've got the knife in my head, so I get you. once I move to my new shop at the end of the month mm-hmm. and I'm getting Ethan Hardy's little giant power hammer. Oh, nice. Which is my biggest, like, that's why well, I'm renting it. Mm-hmm. And so once I move there, I'm going to make that knife. Anybody who likes knives, keep your check out my instagram i guess but that's besides the point the point is that this wood is fantastic once you stop messing up handles i yeah. guess yeah yeah you know yeah, but yeah. now i'm i'm at the point where i'm excited to start buying wood yeah and I, a lot of people are excited to buy your wood yeah which yeah. brings me to to the point of this episode is you know obviously a lot of the people listening are going to be selling a finished project uh product as opposed mm. to raw material but i would really love to hear how what how you've done to brand your you know build a branding to build a customer base yeah absolutely absolutely and you know just take me through yeah Yeah. a lot of that branding work almost yeah so you know the 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 first step in this may sound a little is it's really important for your customers to like you you know the the truth of the matter is we sell a luxury product you know we sell a luxury product and there is a bit of the quote-unquote experience around it, you know. Sometimes you will just post a knife, and a guy's going to say, I want that, and he's going to pay you for it. But that's not how most of your sales are going to go. A lot of your sales are going to be a guy's going to hit you up, he's going to be interested, and you're going to have to do a little bit of work sometimes, you know. So, yeah, that, that's the, and the other thing to remember is I would say – 
you will have repeat customers. I have clients who just come back and back and back. And actually, out of my uh, what four customers so far, one of them is <laughs> is a repeat customer e already. Exactly. That's just how it goes. You know, it's, I a, it's a relationship with exactly. a craftsman is what they Ex like. Exactly. You know, it. You know, becoming someone's go-to guy, and then every Christmas. He's going to say, oh, I got a buddy who needs a knife made. Every time his family member has a birthday, he's going to have knives made. If there's a wedding in the family, he's going to have knives made. And those are those are just great clients to have. And so that's the thing. Sometimes you may, you do have to put a little bit of effort in. You know, we're selling relatively expensive luxury goods to people. And so you sometimes do have to put some effort into the actual sale. Um... The other, one of the other big things I find, checkups. People like feeling, you know, even if it's as simple as, you know, hey, did you get the knife? Do you like it? They'll say, yes, I love it. It's fantastic. Maybe a month or two later, you know, honestly, I've auto-sent these before. You can schedule them on your email. Hey, just wanted to check in. You know, it's been about a month. Everything good with the knife. No issues. Nothing's wrong. And that just makes people feel really good about the service. It, it really does not take much time and it doesn't take much effort, but they will have such a good recollection of that experience and they're a lot more likely to keep coming back to you. Yeah, I think you're, I think that's brings up some really good points and I don't know if, if to help hit your points home is that's something that I do too is I'll I'll check with them when it gets there. I'll, you know, give them a quick rundown. His handle fits in your hand nicely, all this stuff. And I keep reminding them that they have, like, a lifetime warranty type thing for anything. Mm -hmm. I say, I'll say, I'll do any work on the knife that you want. Yeah. If you even just want to send it back for a resharpen or handle finishing, anything. Yeah, yeah. And I think people like that. Yeah, they do. And another thing I've done – oh, no, I've lost my point. <laughs> so – yeah, it's it's this it's a working relationship. Exactly. And exactly. What I'm what it sounds like you've done from a lot of the stuff you've said is you've made yourself a go-to guy for the community. And yeah. so I guess it would be the equivalent of you know, a knife maker collaborating with chef. Yeah. And yeah. You know, oh, that was my point exactly. My I noticed that I get inquiry right right when a knife arrives. So a knife will arrive, and the next day I'll get like four or five oh people yeah. say, oh, oh yeah. I want a knife. I tell them the price, and three of them say they don't want a knife anymore. Yeah. But all my orders have come right when a knife gets yeah. there. Yeah, And so that's, you know, and that's how I'm growing my community. I'm interested to hear, because yeah. a block of wood is a little bit, it's a smaller thing, too. It is. It's not quite so memorable, perhaps, depending on the wood block, of course, yeah. but yeah. as a full knife like that, so... You know, how have you grown yeah. your customer base? Yeah, so I'll actually come back to that thing about the, the, the way people react, how you tell them the price. Something about that is something I learned in college and is how I, one of the great ways that I may continue to be profitable when I was in school and away from my workshop. But I'll come back to that. Um, For sure. My thing has just been, it's a mix of, uh, you, were you were coming down on really standing behind your product. I have a general rule which is you will either be done with, with your business transaction with me and you're either happy or you have your money. There, you know, I, no one buys from me 
and then you know if there's an issue and I can't fix it, I just say, look, send me the thing back and I'll refund you your money. Because personally, in my opinion, I think you don't really get to be mad if you're not out anything. And so it's, you know, it's partially that. It's partially, you know, different, you know, different guys. You know, for instance, I know some of my clients really like spalted material. And if I get a batch spalted in, just give them a shout out. Hey, you know, I got some of this spalted material coming in. Um, you know, keep an eye on the site. And they feel kind of like you're, you know, that a lot of people like to feel like they have a guide, you know? Like they can just say, you know, oh, like I can get you a Nike for your birthday. You know, I have a guide. And th having that sort of relationship is the way that, you know, a single client might end up ordering four, five, ten knives from you. You know, and that's how you get these really high value lifetime customers is anytime the topic of say knives or gifts come up, he'll he'll bring you up. And that really just comes down to, you know, shoot him an email. So say you have a client who got two or three knives and they all had homones. You might if you're working on a personal project, you might say, Hey, you know, just letting you know I got a really cool homones project in the works. Do you want me to send you some photos when it's ready? And people just really like feeling feeling like special like there's you know like you are thinking about them for this product you know I would say just don't rely on your knives selling passively when you're big when you have a big following and you have a lot of name recognition and you come up in Google searches go ahead you don't need to work that hard to sell it but if you don't have that knives don't sell themselves you gotta do some work to get them sold if you want if you want to be profitable and you want this to be a real source of income you're going to have to do some sales work yeah and i think that's a really good point the, and i think your best point is that relationship aspect exactly and i'm i'm by no means an expert you're definitely you know far above me but it's something that um that i've noticed is that yeah you you build a relationship with this person and you know that's I mean, in a lot of ways, that's one of the only things that your product can offer over the one on the shelf at Walmart. It really, you know, you know, yeah. obviously the knife yeah. is better. Yes, yes. But you, but I think the best thing is that human connection. It really is. Yeah, people like the feel. You know, you know, I've I've been around, for instance, the people who you know, I I we go, my family goes to dinner at a family who has several of my knives, and anytime there's a new person at a dinner party. She takes them into the kitchen and goes, look at these knives that Ben made. Aren't they wonderful? And they like it. They like knowing that they have a something that someone put their time and their effort and their love into. And they like that connection. And they like knowing that they have this item that they're probably going to keep for a long time. And yeah. that, yeah, that that's really where the value I in what we do comes from. Obviously, the knives are better. You know, we all know that. But where does the real value come from? Exactly. Especially for an everyday person. Exactly. Where a, a sushi chef will recognize, you know, that's high quality in steel. But someone who cooks dinner for their family s four days a week yeah. isn't going, uh, knife enthusiasts, but they're not going to notice it on exactly. such a level yeah. as exactly. they'll notice this person. Exactly. 
and you gotta you gotta milk that for all it's worth you gotta yeah. make yourself a person and give exactly. yourself personality on your on your social media or however you're putting those knives out there and exactly. i know people like to give uh hand picks a hard time when you got your hand all spread out behind the knife but if you're holding it, it does add almost a human aspect yeah, in yeah. a lot of ways. And like, for instance, I, you know, I always try to mix in, for instance, in something like my Instagram, I mix in the occasional photo that's not just pieces of wood or, or reposts of knives. You know, I'll post a, you know, a picture doing something or, you know, a, a place I went. Not all the time because I am, a, you know, it is a wood page. It's a, it's a business account. Yeah, it's a business account. Yeah. But I'm still a guy. And you know, a lot of people do still appreciate that. Cause, it's a know, nice reminder. Exactly, yeah. You know, and then, you know, people might, you know, for instance, I do quite a bit of uh, relatively traditional Chinese cooking. And uh, I posted some of the stuff I've made. And, you know, random clients are just like, oh, hey, that's really cool, you know, like, what what's the recipe for that? And I just commented a full recipe for one of my favorite dishes, Hong Xiao Roll, on a post. And the guy's just like, yeah, thank you. And then he actually placed an order later. You know, but he, he spent extra time on my site, on my, you know, and he just thought, yeah, this is this is not just a faceless box that ships wood out. There's yeah. a dude. And so if you're not, if, you know, your personality and your human, pardon me, interaction isn't on that level, mm -hmm. then your products better be damn good. Exactly. Exactly. Like, yeah. yeah. So I think that's a fantastic point. And you mentioned your website, and I just yeah, you know, I'm I'm uh, soon gonna be building a website. Mm -hmm. I'm just curious to know: is there any tactics you use to draw people to the website, and or and or to keep them there? Yeah, so so I built my website through Big Commerce. Um, not much of a tech guy, actually. My girlfriend was helping me out with uh, the SEO stuff, so that was actually a big help. But um. The best advice I can give you for your website is, so if you go on my website, greenbergwoods.com, the first thing I think you'll notice is the quality of the photos. I put a lot of time and a lot of effort into high quality and accurate photos of my work. And, and with wood, I'm sure that's yeah. very important. Yeah, it is. So, so for a website for a knife maker, though, you know, you know, you can post your pieces there. One of the best things I would recommend is photos obviously some backstory and a rough price chart and actually on pricing this is one thing that i i've been recommending to a lot of people is time yourself making a knife actually get a stopwatch this is the biggest thing that i've seen with guys who are sort of in the in between a hobby and a business phase is they are vastly undercharging their time. So I really recommend that everyone, when you make a knife, time yourself. Not every time, but set a, start a stopwatch. And if you stop working, stop the stopwatch. And for instance, if you have optional things like guards or bolsters, how much time does that take? And make your price actually reflect that. You know, don't, a lot of guys just say, you know, oh, someone says, how much is a bolster? And they don't know. And they say, oh, it's an extra 50 bucks. I say, okay, maybe that bolster takes you an extra five hours of work to do, you know, if you, what, you know. So I think it's really important to know how long these additional processes are actually taking you so your pricing is actually accurate. And that's actually a thing I really do recommend is timing yourself so you can get an accurate pricing of all your add-ons. The price for 
you know, a bolster for a, you know, a guard, um, you know, so on and so forth. Yeah, I think that's a really great um, point and a really great tip for sure. I, I know roughly how long it takes and then, you know, I take that rough round numbers, mm-hmm. you yeah, know. Yeah, yeah. But I haven't, and I think you're right, I think I should time myself maybe next night, but then I I charge my time at about $10 an hour because, you know, I'm at a fairly low level, I'm mm-hmm. young, I'm mm-hmm. and I don't think I could get off charging more than that, plus materials, and yeah. I call that the night. Yeah. But it's definitely, you know, rough, so yeah. I think I, you bring up a great point there. It's, it's just, even if you don't charge exactly, or, you know, it's just a good number to know. It's just... You know, for instance, for instance, if someone is requesting, you know, a time quote, it's good to know how long of, you know, actual hours of work will this take? Not days, you know, if I'm dicking around or doing other stuff, but how many hours of work are we roughly talking? And knowing roughly how fast you work on your own machines is a good thing to know. It's a valuable number for sure. It is. And that's where most of the t- you know the price comes from is time. Exactly. Yeah. In the in the end, we're selling sharpened bars of steel. Steel, you know, even you know, steel's not cheap. You know, Dana steel is expensive, obviously. Dana steel is crazy. Yeah, Dana steel is really expensive. Cool stuff, though. But yeah. um, you know, but if you're working with a tool steel or a regular, you know, carbon steel or whatnot, you're honestly talking what twelve to twenty five dollars for the somewhere ac- around there. Yeah, you know. For the steel, plus, you know, you get, if you have a nice stabilized block of wood, 50, 75 yeah, bucks. Yeah, um, yeah. But, you know, think about. 25 cents of epoxy. Yeah. The, the, that's another thing I, I do recommend to a lot of people. Um, keep keep pretty good tallies. I have a, I have a Google sheet. It's just a spreadsheet. And every time I make purchases directly to the business, I just put those in there. I put what I bought, how much I paid, and the date that I did it. And that's just good information to have. So you can look back and see, you know, are, am I spending too much on this? You know, what, what are my expenses? It, I would say, you know, is it a good idea to buy, for instance, my epoxy in bulk? How much epoxy am I actually using? Things like that. Like keeping, an, uh, keeping a decent record of what you're actually spending is important. That's an important one that I <laughs> am so far. Oh, it's 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 hard to do. It even and yeah. I think a lot of young makers and craftsmen in general probably struggle with the oh, bookkeeping side of things. As as I, I yeah. You know I <laughs> I don't I don't know my expenses versus my income at all. Exactly. I know how much I've made net, and yeah. that's about it. Yeah. See that's that's the thing. You know I I talk to a lot. You know I, I mean I've I've helped out some knife makers with their business aspects. And I'll say, how much have you made? And they'll go, oh, you know, I've sold, what, you know, 30 knives at, you know, $300, you know, a piece, you know, whatever. I've made whatever it is, 9000 I go, how much does this cost you? And they look at me, and I go, okay, there's your issue, you know. And, yeah, it doesn't, you know, it's important to know roughly how much you're spending. And, ju- you know, it doesn't have to always be dead on perfect to the cent. But if you buy belts, write it down. Have a record of it. When you buy steel, write it down. How many feet of steel did you buy? And you know, and include the cost of, for instance, of shipping it and stuff like yeah. that. And keeping an, a 
not just be dead on, but an accurate record of what you've been spent in can really reveal a lot about your business. Well, I think that's one. There's a couple of things that separate a real business from a hobby. And I think that knowing your expenses is, you know, and having them written down. Yeah, yeah. You know, having having something charted, mapped out almost, yeah. is one of the things that separates a hobby from a business. And as a high school kid, my my only source source of income is knives and <laughs> you know, allowance. Yeah, but yeah. Um, I get my allowance for chores, and I spend all my choring time doing knives anyways, so it's not like I, yeah. <laughs> I don't really no, get I much allowance. I, I make more off knives. So, yeah. you know, as a but, but it's not a very solid business because I just pour most of that money back in anyways yeah, okay. that, that's to build the shop. And once you get set up, then it's when you start to actually make money. Yeah, so this is – okay, so look, you know, I, like I said, I've been on the Blade forums for a really long time, and every now and then some – kids, 16, 17, 18, will come and say they want to do some sort of job, and everyone will say, no, it's a terrible idea, don't do this, da, da, da. And here's my point. You probably shouldn't be doing this if you got a wife and kids and a mortgage, okay? But when you're, if you're like 17, 18, 19, even, you know, like I said, I'm 23, my shopmate uh, fell knives, he's 25, I think. If you, you know, and I live in LA. That's an expensive city to live in. I rent a shop, and I, this is my only source of income. And the real thing is, you really can do this if you're living modestly. You don't have huge expenses. It really is possible. Maybe not for the, your whole life, but if you, you can definitely do this as a job, at least for periods of time. You know, people who say you totally can't. They have a wife and a kid and kids and mortgage and all this stuff. And when you're living at home, I think that's a good plan. When you're living at home with your parents, for instance, that's a great time when you can actually invest money. Because you live, you know, you have your food and your housing covered. And that's a great time to be investing and training. So if you do decide that you wanna either do this just as a you know a, a side hustle style hobby. Or even you may feel you want to try going full-time for a little bit. You have the skills and you have the equipment. What I say is a really terrible idea is not doing any knife making and saying, I'm going to make this my job. That's dumb. What is a smart technique is, for instance, living at home and learning and getting equipment and knowing what it takes and then slowly moving into more and more full-time. Yeah. You can't just and decide to be a full-time knife maker. You start off as a hobbyist knife maker, and then you move towards that. No, and being a young maker is a unique position where, yeah, yeah, all you, ha I have no expenses. Exactly, I have no expenses. And next month I will have some small expenses. I'll be paying for that power hammer. Mm -hmm. I'm moving into a shop with my grandparents. I'm gonna make them let me pay for my heat in there at mm -hmm. least. You know, even though my grandparents are such great people, I don't. I might have to argue with them, but I'm gonna I'm gonna pay yeah. for my heat. Yeah. So yeah. it's uh, I'll have yeah. But, but those are business expenses exactly. now that I'm starting to accumulate. Exactly. And exactly. so all of my money is going into new tools. Yeah. And yeah. it's it's fantastic. Yeah. And it's a it's a unique position, like you say. It is. I, I you know. Yeah, that's the thing. Even somebody with no wife, no kids, uh, just out of college or whatever, and they're just living in like their bachelor pad or whatever you want to call it. They still have expenses. Yeah. I have a studio apartment. Thank you very much. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Um, 
but yeah, no, see, see, that's the thing, you know, I, w I did go into this full-time out of college, but I had four or five years of experience doing this in a, as a business, and I knew roughly how much I made, what it cost me to do this, roughly how many customers I have, how many sales can I rely yeah. on per month. And I, I think that's a big thing, is you had people who wanted your product exactly. already. Exactly, yes. And that's the thing. You know, I would say in a lot of ways, being a young maker gives us an an advantage. First off, this is also this is something I'm dreading is you know I I've been using that sort of oh god I use that like wide eyed kid so much it's oh. so oh all oh. the time all the time you need it oh it's, my it's god yes you like why else do you start young oh my god yeah I got I got such an amazing screaming deal on my anvil I have a two hundred and seventy five pound uh solid it's a steel anvil. That I paid, you're gonna hate me. I paid two fifty for it. What? Yeah, I paid two fifty. I paid five hundred Canadian for my, what is it, one hundred and thirty pound Peter yeah. Wright. This was only a that's this was a couple of years ago. Yeah, and no way. Oh my god. Yeah, I I was probably a little too old to properly play off the kid thing, but damn, did I ham it up, man. Um. Oh, but yeah, yeah, it, it's it's. I a, it's saved a I saved about a hundred and fifty bucks though on oh, my yeah. anvil with that too. Oh yeah, yeah. Don't be afraid. And to it's use not it. taking advantage of pe you know. No, you can't no. be like a real jerk about yeah, it. Yeah, don't be. Yeah, yeah. People. A little bit of oh, I've been saving up since Christmas for this. I'm so oh, excited. Yeah. It just might knock a, a little oh, bit off yeah. the curve oh, yeah. for you. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's the thing about this is a lot of the guys who have historically done this, they are older, and a lot of them. You know, first of all, so I hate the kids these days idea about oh, kids these days don't know what it's like to really make knives, so on and so forth. I hate that, but you know they they worry that they're the last people to do this, and if you're young and they see a bit of themselves in you, in that you're excited to do this, a lot of them will usually be willing to cut you. You know, not a deal, but they'll help you out. You know, I can't tell you yeah. how many times. I've gone to a woodworker's shop to buy tools or material or a blacksmith shop, and they're you know they posted something on Craigslist. They posted a band song Craigslist, and the guy's taking me through the shop, and he you know, hey, do you want like thirty blades? Oh yeah, sure. How much? Oh, yeah, just take them. You know, I don't know. Yeah, whatever. And, you know, oh, do you want this you know huge billet of wood? I'm probably never going to use it. Why don't you just take that too? You just talk to these guys, and you're friendly about it. Maybe you ham up the fact that you're you know seventeen or whatever a little bit. Um, but yeah, that's, you know, don't be afraid to use it. That's, that's an advantage we have. Yeah. Well, I think you're right. The guy that I bought my anvil from, he'd said, this is, I've mentioned this quote before, but I love it. He said, it's good to see a kid who's not just smoking crack. <laughs> like, he, oh, yeah. <laughs> he went pretty heavy on it. He oh, yeah. 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 So, yeah. you know, they like to see kids doing something yeah. productive. Yeah, yeah, they too. do. Yeah. And the other thing is, they also like to see, you know. A bit of knowledge, you know, like, uh, you know, I, I've been, uh, you know, when I'm buying woods, for instance, and I go in, uh, so I, I'm, I'm up there for skills with wood identification, you know, and so, so I'm pretty good. And sometimes I'll go to a guy's shop and he'll have a piece and I'll go, you know, oh, isn't, is this, you know, whatever, uh, you know, Dalbergia cochitonesis? And he's like, well, yeah, how did you know that? And I go, well, you know, I, you know, they, they like to feel that you're not just some kid who thinks he's going to do this. Yeah, you know the fact that if you you can show them, show them some pictures of your work, for instance. That's one thing I always recommend, is you know, you know, show them some of your work, show them what you do. 
people love to help. People Yeah, they do. And I like to help people oh when yeah. I can. I'm oh young yeah. and I don't have much resources to help with, but I help whenever I'm able oh to. Yeah. And but people love to help when you deserve it. Yeah. And if you prove that you've been hustling for a while, you've been working, and yeah, you're not just some kid who thinks they should get it, but you worked for it, people yeah. love to help. Yeah. And people love to see that. But for all the t- you know talk we've been saying of taking advantage of old guys <laughs> here and <laughs> we need their tools, you have to earn it for yeah, sure. Yeah, 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 yeah. D- you know, don't yeah, don't be a jerk. Don't think you're gonna get anything for free. But be and ne- don't ask for it. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> ever. Oh, oh my god. When I that would be a horrible trip. Oh my if god. If you're listening to this thinking, oh, I could probably just ask for that anvil. I bet no. people will give it to you. Don't no. do that. Oh, don't. No. Just no. Deserve it, yeah. and you might get it. Offer, yeah. Start with, you know, start haggling, but start from a fair price. You know, make people feel, yeah, you're you're respectful, but let them offer the deal. You're not if they feel like. Yeah, and a yeah. lot of, and a lot of the times they will. If you're nice about it and you're excited about it, you know, and they can tell that you're excited about this and they feel like you earned the money. A lot of these guys are happy to offer you a deal. Yeah, and I've I haven't gotten anything quite so exciting as yours, but I definitely see, uh, the, you know, results of similar things like that. Do, uh, you know, a little bit, and you'll oh yeah, oh yeah. you always see it, and I'm sure even at twenty, what do you say, twenty three? Yeah, I'm sure 23. you still get a little bit of a oh yeah, oh yeah, you know, young yeah, yeah. I'm I'm younger. Whenever someone comes by my shop after seeing the website or talking to me, they're always a little bit surprised. Well, I mean, yeah, you. You reached out to me, and I'm like, I, re- I recognize this guy's name from years ago. There's yeah. no, this, this can't be the same Greenberg. Yeah, like, yeah. Yeah, so you've been. I've been in this for a while, yeah. That's you've the thing. been in it for a while. I was in this before knife making, before Forged and Fire, before it was, yeah, this is. Yeah, I hopped on it thanks to Forged and Fire, Alex Steele. Yeah. Man yeah. at Arms Reforged. That was the first, like, YouTube that yeah. I really also got. Oh, off topic. Whenever any old guy says, like, oh, you just got into this because of Forged and Fire, don't deal with that. I hate that thing. Who cares why you started doing a thing? If you're making good knives and you're working hard, it is irrelevant how and or why you started doing the thing. Don't let anyone get up get oh, up yeah. with that. I hate but that. But I did 100% <laughs> oh, just yeah. start because of Forged and yeah, Fire. Yeah, of course. Yeah, it was a TV show, and you saw a really cool oh. thing, and you thought, what I want to do that. What a great TV show. Yeah. And I, w- I still watch every single episode. <laughs> Now I make fun of the guys who don't know how to weld, but yeah. I still watch every episode. Oh, yeah. I love the show, oh, yeah. even though I know I've heard Josh Smith or not Josh, what's his name, Jason Knight, uh, mm-hmm. say they're not quite so fun to work with, and oh yeah, I can obviously a lot. Yeah. Like some of the guys on there are a little bit. Yeah. I don't. I'm too young to say anything about them, but anyways, yeah. they're. Oh, yeah. I love the show. It's yeah. a fantastic. There's there's show some, there's regardless. some there's some crusty guys on there and they're. Especially, I remember, I think it was, like, the second season. After the first season was popular, you know, the first season they had, like, Salem on, you know. Oh, there were some great people. Mareko was on the first season. Yeah, and then they started kind of – then I think what happened was they thought that, you know, we have a gold mine. And someone – I mean, I've I've gotten the messages from them, you know. When I was starting off, they just said, hey, do you want to apply? And I said, I don't think I'm the right guy for this. You know, I'm not not really a knife maker these days. But uh, they would just message – anyone and i think some of the people they got on that show were just some random guy who responded to an email because he posted a photo of a knife somewhere they uh yeah 
Okay, the one I always come back to, and the one that I do think I'm 100% qualified to make fun of, is the guy who didn't know how to TIG weld, or MIG weld at all. I like, not, not, not at all. I just remember... I just remember the I just remember the girl who uh who was attaching a knife to a handle with just rice. She just jammed a bunch of cooked rice into the tang hole and then jammed what? the Yes. She someone I guess she was thinking of rice glue, but she had literally just cooked like a batch of white rice, put it into the tang hole, and then jammed the tang in. And they're gonna like you know, they're gonna do the test. And I think it I think it was Jay Nielsen kinda shakes it and he goes, Is this epoxied in here? The woman goes, no, no, I used a traditional rice glue. And he goes, used rice glue? She goes, yeah. And he, he just pulls the blade out. And he goes, is this rice? And the woman's like, yeah, it's a rice glue. And the guy's like, we we can't test this. This is a safety hazard. This is, this is, I'm like, what? And then she just lost. So wait. I'm, I'm trying to look this up right now. She, she just stuffed rice in there? She stuffed rice, yes. She was trying to come up with a rice glue, which is you process the rice starch into a glue. But someone just told her, I think she was making, not, uh, what do you call them? Washizaki? The, like, the short, um, I think it was a washizaki. One of the short Japanese swords. Yeah. And yeah, yeah. and I think, I, 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 I'm almost positive, yeah, she just jammed the tang hole full of rice. Of cooked rice, and then thought that was gonna glue it in. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, that's that worse than not knowing how to weld. That's yeah, a bad that, choice. That, that, yeah, that was an intense one. I actually, huh. I actually took lessons from a guy, um, uh, Mike Schindel. He was on one of the seasons. I used to take lessons from him. He he lived quite near me. Huh. That's great. Yeah. Well, some of the people on there are just fantastic. Oh yeah. Too. Oh yeah. But. Forged in Fire, Forged in Fire, and Alex Steele have gotten so many people. Oh yeah, oh yeah, and that's why all my guests are knife makers, because as far as I can find, most of the kids doing this are knife makers. Oh yeah, Yeah. because it's very accessible right now. Oh yeah, yeah. and I think it's a great thing because it's gotten me into. I'm excited to get and branch out into other crafts because knife making has gotten my foot in that door. Yeah, see, yeah, that's the thing. A lot of guys, you know, like, oh, it's so easy to get into knife making these days, but. But yeah, it's easier. That's it a, that's a good thing. You know, there's Great. there's new there's all sorts of new grinders. You know, you don't have to find some t- old dude selling you a Wilton square wheel. You could get, you know, anything from an Oregon blade grinder, a Fear, all the way up to the um. Oh, what's that really nice one by the um? There's one that Trav. There's one that Travis worked makes. Oh, the TW nineties. Yeah. The the Bader grinders are super nice yeah, too. They're all ca- solid cast. There's that other one. There's that machine shop that makes those ultra precise ones. I forgot. Um. um but anyways, yeah. there's tons. Yeah. Now. yeah. Vashti is where I got mine. I love those guys. Yeah. There's tons. They yeah. were really there's great. There's all sorts of stuff. Yeah. So, it's it's great that it's easy to get into, and it yeah, does. It really is. Knife yeah. making uses such a wide variety of materials from. And why there's a lot of methods you can use to get it there. Yeah, and the so from, yeah. you know, knife making, you can branch into blade smithing, mm-hmm. which is e- an easy step to move into ornamental ironwork or yeah, yeah. you know sculptural or any of that stuff. You're working with the handles can get you into wood or selling wood like yeah, you did. Yeah. Um, 
any other t- and that branches real easy into any other type of carpentry, yeah. furniture, yeah. anything. And the other thing that I will point out that I hear a lot again, especially from older guys, is oh, knife making is becoming saturated. It is. Well, that's a concern. Is the market? See, no. Here, run he, off. N- here's the thing. Think about the number of people in America with the dispose. You know, who who spend say two hundred to four hundred dollars on luxury items now and then. Think about the number. You know, I I think every household in America that cooks occasionally is a potential customer that could be convinced. If you know, say they're, you know, they're brother's son or their neighbor or someone like that offers a knife i'd say the more knife makers there are the more knife customers there will that's be that's a good point you know but the concern is then that a lot of people or some uh, you know there's always going to be a cup uh, some people who begin selling their work too early oh so yeah they're putting out work that's not fit for sale and I can understand how people could be concerned that that would um, yeah scare off a cus- a potential customer from <laughs> ever getting yeah, into custom knives see, again. But, but I th- it's a small minority for sure. Yeah, and I see. I think in a lot of ways, for instance, you know, a guy gets interested in custom knives. He starts looking it up on Instagram. He starts googling it. He starts following knife pages. He follows more knife pages. He starts. You know, that's how you get a collect. That's how you get a collector. You know, I mean, there are guys who. You know, I'm not gonna. You know, obviously, not gonna say his name, but there are guys I know who have over a hundred thousand dollars in knives. I know customers who have a Lamborghini's worth of knives. They they are obviously an exception, but yeah, not everybody. But I I'd say they're you know for instance, so a lot of my customers are actually chefs. They're guys who buy wood to have it sent to the maker. And I can tell you these guys are repeat customers. You know, so even just a, a an enthusiastic home chef will just will get more knives. And like I said, they'll order knives for their friends. They'll get, you know, they'll get knives for their, you know, for a wedding or for a birthday or for Christmas for people. And when someone else gets a knife, they go, oh, my God, custom knives are a thing? That's really cool. And then they may get more into it and so on. In this, people having nice knives brings more people who want nice knives and once you have one there's no going back oh yeah oh yeah so i think it's a anybody who starts knife making i believe wholeheartedly is a good thing oh yeah absolutely and any other craft any craft i think is incredible yeah you know i follow somebody who does uh cross stitch and she does this great like 3d cross stitch that she takes off Mm -hmm. and like pulls the pizza and it's got like threads making the cheese it's crazy and I know that's a complete tangent, but oh yeah, no, man, there's um, people making stuff is an awesome thing. I think there's one girl. The maker movement there, is an yeah, awesome thing. There's one girl. I think her name is like Beware Ceramics. She does like Damascus style ceramics. She takes like different clays of with different colors, and does things like a feather pattern or you know a twist or whatever. And she makes like vases and bowls with Damascus like patterns of clay. It's just the coolest thing, yeah. It's it's so great, yeah. And the maker movement is oh, yeah. something that's coming now, and I'm happy to be a part of it. Yeah. I think it's a fantastic thing. I totally agree. But back to sort of the purpose yeah. of this podcast, I suppose. We yeah. we've gone on a tangent, yeah. and I I love that tangent. Yeah. That was a good yeah. one. But you 
worked and ran this as a business yes. all through yeah. uh, all most through high school, all through college. Yes. And well, there's a lot of workload that comes with those schools. Yeah. And so yeah. how did you balance you know work and school? So the best advice I can say when you're in school is you're going to have to change your product line. The simple fact is, you know, people will come up and, you know, you'll somehow you'll mention that you make knives. Someone says, oh, shit, let me see a photo. You show a photo. I want one. That'll be $300. Never mind. That will happen, I can assure you, at least 100 times in college. It's just going to happen over and over again. So what I – that's sort of why I transitioned more to my business. But what I can say, I suggest – so, for instance, I actually – one of my new businesses um, is I work with a small bladesmithing family. And I have about 150-odd knives that I'm bringing in. And one of the things I'm, I'm offering these to makers to basically do – they're pretty rough. So, but, you know, you do some cleanup, rehandle, sharpen them. You can, And then I think a maker should be able to offer them at, like, a $75 to $150 price point quite comfortably. And that's what you want to hit. If you can make, if you're a blacksmith and you can make bottle openers and sell them for 50 bucks, you know, if you can do, you know, if you can finish up like semi-forged blanks, for instance, and offer them at roughly that price point, that is a wonderful thing to do. So something that you can really bust out during your breaks, because that's sort of what I did. When I went home for winter break, I was working crazy days and I prepped enough wood material to sell for the next 10 weeks of my school. And if you can make stuff like that, you can make quite a nice income in college because it's just sales at that point, and that can be passive. You can post those on a website or your Instagram or whatever, and that's the, that is the way I found to make money in college. I'm going to be honest. Don't look to rent a shop in college. If you're far away from your house in college, I highly recommend against renting a shop. You'll get distracted. Moving all your equipment out there is a real pain. You might not always have a car. You have, you know, all your classwork. Your friends will want to hang out. You'll be paying rent. It's a huge pain to bring all that stuff back home to do work. You gotta unpack everything. You end up just spending a lot of money on rent. In general, your shop is gonna be far away from school. I really highly recommend against renting a shop in college. I really think that you should um, should come up with some products that are simple, that are at lower price point, that you can really hammer out when you're at home and in your workshop, and that you can sell throughout the school time. Like I said, bottle openers, keychain stuff, you know. Uh, like I said, so for instance, like I said my my pre-made knives. If you turn simple, you know, simple bowls, things like that, that is my recommendation because you are just operating at a lower price point in college. Sorry, I'm I'm literally taking notes right now. Yeah. Um, and I think I'll do a some I'll do a recap at the end of the yeah, episode, sure. which is something I haven't done before. But this is sort of the most educational episode we've had yet. And here's here's sort of an out of left field question, but it comes to mind because um, I'm I'm working towards graduating early in high school, mm -hmm. a year early, and I want to go straight to college. I'm just trying to like yeah. push through school yeah. quickly. And I had a long a lot of talk with my dad this weekend about um, 
you know, picking classes in university and like what you want to do mm-hmm. and how to pick things that complement what you want to do mm-hmm. and pick things to set yourself up for the life you want. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so this is just sort of a curiosity, personal question almost about when you went into college, did you expect or university? I, I think, yeah, science would be university. Um, did you go into your classes with the intention of help it helping you find a job or of it helping you to run your business better? <laughs> I I was a science kid in school. I was always like the you know the science kid, and I am good at science. You know, I I got a BS in applied uh, chemistry, but I personally just found that I was a lot better and I had a lot more love for business than I did for science. The plan was the whole time that I was going to get my chem degree, I was going to work in a lab, and then I was going to go back, and I was going to get my PhD, and I was going to do even fancier lab work. Um, and actually, I was actually talking to a good friend of mine recently. Um, he went in originally planning to do just business and you know stocks and finance and all that stuff, and then we switched, and uh, and you know now I'm in the business track. Now he's doing a PhD program. Um, the thing that I will say, though, is, you know, so the way that, one of the ways I looked at this, you know, my parents have always been, you know, so Ben, are you going to get a real job or something like that? And my point has always been, you know, it, my job right now pays reasonably well. You know, I like my hours. I like being my own boss. I enjoy it. Pay is pretty, is, you know, it's not amazing. I probably could be making more money, but I like it. And the other thing is, it looks fantastic on a resume. You know, even, you know, yes, you know, being a talented blacksmith might not count for much if you apply for a job somewhere, but you can say, I managed a business. I handled all the sales. I handled all the accounting. I designed my website. I did, you know, customer relations. I did advertising. That's really good stuff on a resume. So I will say, if you're not just making knives, but you're running a business, and if you're running it well, that's not a waste on a resume, at least. Don't think you can't pivot from that to something else. Because properly worded, it's a fantastic resume. You built a business. You were profitable. You were you know, advertising. You had all this stuff. So don't be afraid. Don't think that you're wasting time if your friends are like doing internships or whatever. If you can go into a job interview for something and you can say, started and ran a successful business from the age of 17, you will get some heads turned. Don't think that it's, you know, it's a limited field. Wow. what a g- That's a great point, and I think that's a really positive and a really great note to leave out on. Yeah. You know, and, like, I think, I think this episode has been – I've really enjoyed having you yeah, on. I think yeah. you've been a fantastic yeah, guest, and I think man. you've been a really – knowledgeable guest and someone honestly i recommend all you young makers out there who are looking at your future and shaking a little bit should you guys should go back and listen to this episode again it's been great yeah so the truth of it is you know when you talk to old guys they'll say that you can't do this for a job and like i said perhaps you can't do it your whole life i don't know you know there's you know we're in a luxury market whatever but there's no reason that you can't do this in your 20s or your late teens. You really can. 
if you're doing it well, you really can. And it's not some gap on your resume where everyone else is ahead of you. I actually, I have actually, you know, a couple of my clients are business people, you know, quite high up finance, business, you know, things like that. And I sort of mentioned one time that I was a little bit nervous. And, uh, and one of my clients, who's now like a VP at some major finance firm, said, oh, no, we'd love you. You have experience. And if you sell it right, you didn't, you know, you have experience managing all this stuff with stress and business. And that's just the sort of characteristics that people do like. It's not a waste of your time. You're not putting this off until you get a real job. This is real training for both the job market and interview training in a lot of ways. It's a great thing to have on a resume. And I will tell you, if you can manage your own successful business, working at a company or something like that is a breeze compared to, you know, knowing if I don't sell this tomorrow, I'm not making any money tomorrow. You know, so it really is great preparation. Don't let people with a mortgage and a job they probably hate tell you that you cannot do this full time. You really can. If you're good, if you know what you're doing, it's well within the realm of possibility. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you yeah, for man. those great uh, great words. I hope that you know some of you guys out there are listening to this and it's making you guys feel you know comfortable to go for it and you know, I think something that I like to try and live by and I like to I don't know. <laughs> I'd like to tell myself is that like passion breeds passion. Yeah. And if you do what your thing is and you do it well, then you know there's no way you can fail. Um, there's always unless you fail, in yeah. which case that sucks. There's but there's <laughs> you know there's always a market for good things done well. Yeah, yeah. If you do something well enough, somebody's gonna buy it. Yeah. And if you if you need examples of that, I don't know. Look up like someone selling dumb stuff on the internet, yeah. and you can find it, and they're doing it oh, well yeah. enough that they do it. Yeah. Or even you know something simple, you know, like violins. You know, one of my clients sells. God, like 15 grand violins. If he's the best at making violins, someone wants the best violin and they'll yeah. buy it. So, do your thing and young makers, we're in a, you know, young makers are in a special position and you got to use that to everything you yeah. do. So, yeah. I would like to, you know, w uh, wrap up the episode sort of by, I don't know, going back over the stuff that we've been over because yeah. I feel like this episode's been really really great yeah. so we started by talking about <laughs> buffing compounds yep. and we ended on uh career and life choices <laughs> so you know ben recommends a brown triple e compound mm -hmm. or the blue moon compound yep. on a spiral sewn cotton wheel is a great way to buff you can then hand buff and hand buff with a, a beeswax or some other type of hard finishing wax mm -hmm which is great. He, d w he walked us through the uh, stabilization process where resin is sucked into the pores of the wood and then, you know, it's pressurized and then baked mm -hmm. and that makes it, you know, dense and hard and finish well. Yep. Then talked about the importance of a relationship with your customers and, you know, being a, f being a human because that's the biggest thing that you're offering. Mm -hmm. And then the biggest expense that you have is your time. And so keeping track of that time as well as your other expenses is very important and will help you price your work properly and will help you make a profit. Yep. And then 
and talk about a sale almost I I think of it as a sales cycle throughout your school years yep. where on breaks you make a lot of a product and then let it passively sell as you're at school but not too passively of course yeah. Yeah. and simple objects that you can sell you know that's uh, accessible to a lot of yeah. consumers is a good uh, is it's a good option I would especially say when you're in school it should be sub 200 bucks under 200 so yeah something Something somebody can buy with the, you know, the froth on top of their paycheck. Exactly. And finally, we talked about, you know, the fact that you totally can make money off of something if you're doing it well enough. Exactly. And I think that's a fantastic message to leave with. And so I usually open it up to wise words uh, for my guests to end the show with, but I don't know if you can beat that. Yeah. So make, uh, make unless you can. Make good stuff stand behind your product and people will buy it for a fair price if you're selling it for a fair price all right thank you yeah. that's the business that's the business end of things here thank you ben you've yeah. been a fantastic guest yeah, happy to be on and i hope that you know some of you guys have taken some value from this i know i definitely have so this has been the young makers podcast brought to you by the makery which is a podcast network for makers it's chock full of fantastic shows with shows dropping every week sometimes multiple shows shows dropping every day sometimes multiple different shows a day mine comes out young makers podcast comes out every tuesday at you know 5 a.m mountain time so hopefully if you're anywhere in north america it should be available for your drive to work so thank you please comment or review or Shoot me a DM at Young Makers Podcast on Instagram. Follow that Instagram for updates. Send in any questions, comments, concerns you may have. I would love to talk about them on the show. And until next time, keep making, keep listening. Good night.